Last week, if you were with us, it's okay if you weren't, we began a summer series in a unique book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And if you want to take that Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible you brought with you and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I'll give you a little bit more introduction while you're getting there. It's on page 461 in the pew Bible, if you're using that Bible. Ecclesiastes reflects, it reveals the musings of a man who throughout the book goes by a nickname, the teacher. But tradition holds... And I think we can faithfully, safely assume, excuse me, that that teacher was King Solomon, the son of David, who, if you're not familiar with Solomon, thanks to an endowment from the Lord, was the wisest man who ever lived. And it's with his wealth of knowledge and experience and wisdom that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is on a quest. It's the journey to answer a question that most of us ponder at some point in our lives. What? is the meaning of life. Solomon intentionally looks around at the world and examines all of the possibilities in terms of what he calls life under the sun, S-U-N, life under the heavens. This phrase, life under the sun, is employed, you're going to see it like 30 times in Ecclesiastes. It's, it, it's this phrase that reflects life here on earth, under the sun, right? Without regard to God or eternity. In other words, if we envision this life as all there is, life on our own, with God's role being nothing more than our distant creator, meaning no further revelation, no divine intervention, what good is everything? What good is anything? And if you were with us last week, and he'll repeat it, so don't worry, right from the start, the teacher does not leave us, Solomon does not leave us in suspense in terms of the answer to that question, the meaning of life. Solomon sums up his thesis in chapter one. Apart from God, Solomon declares, everything is meaningless, utterly and ultimately futile. And see what's gonna happen now, starting today from here on in, Solomon's gonna take us through each of his experiments, as it were, so that we can, for ourselves, consider the validity of his conclusion. And so we begin in chapter 2. And I invite you to read along with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 and then skip to 24 through 26. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Solomon writes, I said to myself, come, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made, re made reservoirs to wa of water groves for flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor." And this was the reward for all my toil. 
Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Skipping to verse 24. A person can do no better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who, who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Solomon's pursuit of pleasure, right? Solomon, the teacher, he begins his search, as we see in chapter 2, by turning his attention to amusement. And again, if you're not familiar with Solomon, he is a king of Israel at the time when Israel is really the world's only superpower. And so you can imagine that Solomon, no doubt, had a constant stream of entertainment at his disposal. And his pursuit of pleasure, as we heard, starts by having a few laughs, First, he turns to laughter. But as we read on, we also see that Solomon indulges in the arts. Did you catch this? He creates his own personal music channel through his acquisition of an on-site choir. Singers to serenade him at his beck and call. But if this doesn't sound like quite the party scene yet, Solomon livens things up with spirits too, with alcohol. The finest wines and the choicest of food pairings were his to savor and to celebrate. Now, through all of this, was Solomon just flirting with being a wine connoisseur? Or did he ever take things a little too far, wasting away in Margaritaville, if you will? If you listen carefully, if you have those Bibles open, you'll notice that Solomon tells us himself it was a little bit of both, wisdom and folly. He sought pleasure in both appreciating the finer things of life as well as in taking things too far, drinking, eating, and partying too much. Solomon's first snapshot of pleasure-seeking is one, for me, that is all too familiar, even thousands of years later. It's a scene that many of us have participated in, or at least witnessed going on around us within our own social circles. Food and drink, sometimes a little too much drink, and an overabundance of food. A day or night out painting the town, Joking around and socializing, having a good time on the surface, entertainment by association, but not much substance in conversations or relationships beyond that. If it feels good, do it, is not a new mantra. It's an ancient one. Many a generation has sought to eat, drink, and be merry as the solution to finding meaning and happiness in life. And Solomon denies himself nothing in his effort to not take life so seriously, to forget his troubles and leave his worries behind. But Solomon, again, if we were paying attention like everybody else, had his morning after. He confesses the madness of trying to drown our sorrows, of laughing away the tears. Sooner or later, the trauma, the tragedy of this world finds us. Nothing can take away the pain of the emptiness of life in the face of death. And yet Solomon presses on. His exploration of pleasure shifts gears as he pursues satisfaction in public works, 
in undertaking great building projects. In the book of 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, they record how Solomon devoted himself to the best of architecture, agriculture, and engineering, spectacular construction programs, a royal palace that he lived in some 13 years in the making, and when it was done, it was even bigger than the temple. New cities built by Solomon, designed to store his many provisions and resettle his people. Elaborate shaded forests and reservoirs to gather precious rainwater in the hot desert. Extravagant landscaping, lush vineyards and fruit trees, as well as beautiful gardens. It's almost as though, the way Solomon describes it, it's almost as though Solomon is literally trying to create a new Garden of Eden. His own little slice of paradise in the world. When he isn't constructing new homes, cities, parks, and gardens, Solomon tells us he's building his investment portfolio. He accumulates more flocks and herds than anyone before him in Jerusalem. Along with livestock, Solomon tells us he purchases male and female slaves. So many, in fact, he eventually stops buying them and breeds them instead. With all of these servants at his disposal, Solomon is waited on hand and foot. He never has to lift a finger. He never has to get his hands dirty. Solomon, you see, is able to test wealth on a level to which even Donald Trump would envy. He had such an ongoing stream of tribute from kings and taxes from all the lands he ruled over that the Bible tells us Solomon was swimming in gold. He climbed golden steps in order to reach his golden throne from which he ate from golden plates and drank from golden vessels. The scriptures say Solomon was so rich he made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He amassed so much money and resources, Solomon could kick back all day long and sip drinks by the pool. But that's not all. You saw it. Don't blush. But Solomon also tells us he had all the sex he could get to. Solomon brags of his harem, of having the delight of a man's heart. And that little phrase that you'll see there in your Bible, the delight of a man's heart, that seems like an innocuous little phrase, right? But coming on the heels of bragging about his harem, that little phrase in Hebrew is a euphemism to describe sexual pleasure. And we learn elsewhere in the Bible, Solomon had more than his share of 50 shades of gray. Every culture and every time has its own high-profile playboys. But with 700 wives and 300 concubines of various nationalities and backgrounds, Solomon operated on an entirely different plane of sensual pleasure than we can imagine. No limits. No controls. That's what Solomon had in his pursuit of pleasure. Anything he saw and wanted, he had the absolute freedom to take and consume. Now, most of us wouldn't connect this, getting whatever we want, with our ultimate purpose in life. I mean, we, that, you know, if we were asked what's the ultimate purpose in life, we wouldn't say we'll get whatever we want. But functionally, isn't this how we live? Don't we tend to act like the goal of living is finding the way to experience less pain and more satisfaction? Isn't our very nation founded on the conviction life is fundamentally about the pursuit of happiness? If we were to ask any random stranger on the street, why are we here? Wouldn't most people answer without hesitation? Wouldn't most people answer even with just a little bit of thinking? Why are we here? To be happy. To enjoy life. Period. 
Well, Solomon puts that answer to the meaning of life to the test and then some. He exercises resources and circumstances we lack to consider the net worth of pleasure. Mirth, merriment, folly, building projects, shopping sprees, cash to burn, sexual freedom. Solomon samples it all. Every form of satisfaction money can buy. And through Ecclesiastes, what I like to refer to as his tell-all book, we're able to see, beloved, we are able to see what we truly have when we get our heart's every desire. And isn't that deep down what we believe? Don't we wonder if we could get our every heart's desire, what would we have? What would it be like? Solomon shows us. And what do we learn? What do we learn from Solomon's escapades? The first thing I think we learned this morning from what we've read is pleasure is pleasurable. Pleasure is pleasurable. I, I need you to be clear about something. Solomon tells us openly in what we just read, openly his heart took delight from all his various pursuits. In all of his wild and crazy recreational activities, don't miss this, Solomon found pleasure. This first observation may seem obvious, but it's a significant one because I think it's a reality check to a church that often engages the world from a false premise. We who are Christians often condescendingly perceive those who do not share our faith, those who like to party hard, those who indulge their appetites to, to excess, those who bask in their wealth or boast about their sexual con conquests. We tend to condescendingly perceive that deep down those people are really miserable and dis discontented. Now, while sometimes such people are, we're wrong in assuming everyone who engages in all the diversions the world has to offer is unhappy. They are not. They are having a good time. Solomon, through his experience, affirms pleasure is pleasurable. Verse 24 that we read is going to be like a theme that gets a refrain repeated by Solomon throughout the book. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Solomon, in other words, counsels us to seize the day and enjoy life's simple rewards. This is important because contrary to how we often present it, Christianity is not about happiness by subtraction, constantly denying oneself life's pleasures. Many of us have been taught or believed that when we came to follow Christ. Well, that means no more fun, no more pleasure. Got to let all that go because this is serious business. And I don't want to deny that there need to be changes in our life for following Christ, but we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Solomon doesn't do that. Our God is not a somber, cosmic killjoy. No, our Father created the world good. And he, in fact, he commanded us to enjoy his creation. The key, you see, Solomon tells us that pleasure is pleasurable, but the key is to recognize pleasure Happiness are not the product of our longing, our desire, our effort. Our capacity to enjoy life comes from God's hand. Quite surprisingly, against the, the grain of a prosperity gospel, Solomon encourages us to enjoy what we have each day, but not to expect or presume it is ours forever. Ours to control or to own 
In other words, there are no guarantees every day will be the best day ever. Or that even each day will necessarily be a good day. The experience of pleasure, in other words, is a gift of grace like everything else. And gifts are not divine obligations of instant gratification. The only guarantee we have is our salvation in Christ. Everything else is just gravy. And this leads to the second observation we ought to pick up from Solomon here. Pleasure is pleasurable, but when we confuse the pleasures of creation with the joy of a relationship with the creator, we turn the very blessings God gives us into curses that wear us down. Did you notice how Solomon uses the word toil, work, to describe his experiences with pleasure? I find that odd, don't you? I mean, Solomon literally becomes the man who has everything. I mean, fame, fortune, glory. But at the end of it all, he's not happy. His pursuit of wine, women, and song has exhausted, has depleted him, rather than build him up and energize him. Why? Because as he alludes to here, and if you know his story, elsewhere the scriptures tell us, because all of his energy, all of his will, all of his ingenuity became constantly and restlessly focused on how he could achieve more pleasure. As the thrill always eventually had to be gone, he had to search for another diversion. And as that happened, Solomon gradually became consumed by his desires a slave to his passions. Every high for Solomon needed to be higher than the last, bigger than the last. And eventually he came to see pleasure could only take him so far. The laughter ends. The music only plays for so long. The things we make crumble. The wealth we acquire gets put into someone else's hands. Hence, Solomon writes, the pursuit of pleasure is nothing more than a chasing after of the wind. All our indulgences, whatever they might be, offer momentary relief, but no lasting satisfaction. Deep down, even if we haven't had the range of Solomon's experiences, deep down we know he's right. Don't we? We know he's right. We've all been there. I've been there. We finally get our heart's desire and we're happy for a moment. And then we want something else, something new, something more. But in the end, it won't make any difference. We won't be completely, ultimately satisfied no matter what we get. Solomon's right, and we know it, but we still allow ourselves to be driven by the false conviction we can buy happiness. We can find meaning. We can achieve contentment through what we consume. Beloved, the problem isn't any of the things or experiences themselves. Our fatal flaw, Solomon wants us to see, is the significance we place in all our pleasures. We look to them for a worth they do not possess, for a value they cannot hold. All of the true pleasures of creation were given by God for us to enjoy as a means of worship, of being in relationship with him. When we worship the gifts rather than the giver, we are practicing idolatry. 
And I told you that this, this experience of going through Ecclesiastes is in some sense about confronting our idols, really coming to understand what idolatry is. And that leads us to the final observation we can make today from Solomon's study. And it's about idolatry. Idolatry, according to Solomon, isn't so much doing bad things as it is making good things into ultimate things. I want to repeat that again because it's so important. Idolatry isn't so much doing bad things as it is making good things into ultimate things. We really need to sit here for a second because contrary, again, oftentimes from a condescending attitude to our kids who've fallen away from the faith or family members or complete strangers, the real problem in our lives or in the lives of others, the real problem isn't sleeping around. It isn't drinking too much. It isn't shopping until you drop. That's not the real problem. These are just the symptoms. The real problem, the sin, is looking to our physical relationships to give our lives meaning. Thinking that all that sex is somehow going to satisfy you beyond the moment. It's relying on alcohol to make us feel good about and comfortable with ourselves. It's believing that what we have, that what we wear, that what we purchase defines our identity. Beloved, the real problem is whenever we seek to find salvation in whatever we're indulging in apart from God. The real problem is because when that happens, our very desires, just like Solomon, consume us. We're not consuming them they're consuming us. They're not passions we pursue. They're passions that we're slaves to. As we remain overwhelmed by anxiety, obsessiveness, envy, and resentment, as we find ourselves perpetually disoriented and insecure, you are a victim of idolatry. Idolatry is reigning in your life. You are being consumed by your desires. You are a slave to them when you find yourself always striving but never arriving. Always striving but never arriving. Beloved, seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake, for the sake of our own amusement, will ultimately leave us empty. Whenever we turn good things into ultimate things, whenever we look for the gifts and pleasures of this world to give us ultimate meaning, we will always be left wanting more and never satisfied. Lasting fulfillment. What Solomon is starting to point us to, and he'll get there by chapter, by the end of this book, lasting fulfillment can only be discovered in living to please God. Lasting fulfillment can only be discovered in living to please God. How do we live to please God? We find our pleasure in the Lord through delighting in him. Not following all the rules. Through delighting in him. We delight in our Father. We delight in Christ. We delight in the Holy Spirit when we reflect the triune God's joy for us in our joy toward others. In other words, life's pleasures are gifts of God's grace for which we need to give thanks, but life's pleasures, which are gifts of God's grace, are meant for us to experience contentment by giving them away, by serving and bringing joy to others. To hit this another way, in other words, life's meaning does not reside in receiving God's blessing. Life's meaning is not about receiving God's blessing. Life's meaning is found in using, sharing our blessings and opportunities for the enrichment of others. 
There is no sure, more sure investment than living for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Christ modeled to us this very life of giving everything for our sake. The pleasure born of taking what God gives and giving it for the sake of others, the pleasure born of that kind of pursuit yields a lasting return of joy and peace and fulfillment that cannot be measured, that cannot be taken away. And do you see, that's why, again, echoing Ecclesiastes, Jesus will tell him himself, us himself, Jesus will later, echoing Solomon, will say to replace our pursuit of earthly treasure with a wholehearted devotion to building up heavenly treasure. Jesus will say, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Beloved, my friends, the heavenly treasure, the lasting return is not the stuff. It's not the experiences. The heavenly treasure, the lasting return is not the stuff. It's not the experiences we consume. The lasting treasure, the heavenly treasure is the relationship. First with God, and then with each other. That's what lasts. That's what pays eternal dividends. That's what satisfies. And so this morning, taking these words from Solomon, I want us to continue sort of what I started last week. You're going to find this summer series is a time for reflection. I, I, for me, the summer is a really, a, more than any other season, a time for sort of stepping back and taking stock Maybe this is different for you, but if there's at any other time, if life slows down, it's going to be in the summer at some point. If I take a vacation, it's going to be during the summer. And so it's a time to step back and take stock. And this book, Solomon's Words, give us the opportunity to really step back and take stock. Last week, I asked you, if you were with us, to, from the first chapter, to simply take stock and reflect on whether you think Solomon's crazy or whether you think he's onto something here. I asked you to talk about where, what your answer is to the meaning of life. I provoked you even further. I gave you permission to eavesdrop on other people's conversations, to hear what do you hear people talking about, directly or indirectly? What are they pointing to as the meaning of life? And I want to continue that sort of reflection by encouraging you to take an inventory based upon what Solomon has given us here, to take a personal inventory, to step, step, put some time aside and set, stop and ask yourself, based upon what Solomon has shared, where do you seek? Where do you find pleasure? Where do you seek? Where do you find pleasure in your life? And I want to encourage you to be specific. I want to really challenge you to be honest, to write it down. I envision you almost making a list of the places where you seek and find pleasure. And when you have that list, I want to suggest to you that then you can put those, all of those things that you write down in one of three categories, and that's where you'll start to really start to reflect and to see. So you have that list, and as you take that inventory, the things you put down are going to fall, in my view, in one of three categories. The first is in the midst of what you put down there, you are going to see some full-blown idols. You are going to see some full-blown idols. You are going to see some places, some things, some stuff, some experiences where you crave them more than anything else. Where you find meaning, purpose, and significance in them apart from Jesus, apart from anyone else. These are the things that if you don't get, if others deny you, watch out. You get grumpy, you get mean, you get dark really fast. 
But if those things are fed, if those things are taken care of, you're the nicest person in the world. And if you don't believe, if idols is too, too ancient of a term for you, let me put it this way. You're going to see on that list some things that are not only full-blown idols. If you prefer a more modern term, they're full-blown addictions. Where in the things of your life, where are you finding and seeking pleasure and you're not consuming that? It, it's consuming you. They promise pleasure. You convince yourself it's good for you, but if you really step back, you're in bondage. Solomon's word to us today and my word to you as you see those things, as you put them into that category, you gotta let them go. You gotta let them go. You gotta drop them like a bad habit. You gotta get them out of your house. You've gotta remove them completely and you may not be able to do it in your own strength. You need to pray for God to release you from the power of those idols. That's one thing. Things you list out there, you may have a place of some full-blown idols, some addictions that you confront. And if you're sitting here right now and you've got some sort of stereotypical view of you're not an addict, let me just, let me just, let me just burst your bubble right here. If you sit in church and you believe you're a sinner, you're an addict. Please, please, spare yourself of telling yourself you're not like those people. You are. And if you don't understand that, then you really don't understand the gospel. So the first is confronting your full-blown idols. The second is as you look at that list of things where you seek, where you find pleasure, you may find things, you may see things that as you're honest, they're not idols, but they're starting to become idols. They're starting to be things that are less about God and more about the things, the stuff, the experiences themselves. They're things that God has given you to enjoy, that you want to associate with God, but honestly, if you really put it out there, you're seeking and falsely, falsely perceiving your fulfillment in the things, in the experiences, and less and less in God. And rather than freaking out, rather than being in despair if the, the, about the, the fact that they're leaning towards idolatry, see it as an opportunity for the Lord to turn those things around, those avenues, those experiences, those gifts around. Ask God as you lay those things that are unsteady how you can glorify God through them. Examine the, the blessings you've been given and ask God how can you take those things to bring joy to serve others See them not as your own possessions, but as gifts of grace. And if you see them as gifts of grace, then you will remember grace is meant to be shared. Now, it's really easy to, for me to go to give you the, this is what I want you to do, and, you know, and, I'm, and let me know how it goes. But I want to be honest and confessional for you for a moment. I want to share to, for you, in doing this myself, something that falls on that second list for me. One of the places that I derive a lot of pleasure, that I find great joy in, is in playing games. I love games. Board games, video games, uh, physical games, my body's up to it. You know, you, we sit here and you want to, you know, have a contest on, uh, you know, how many people are sitting on this side. I'm in. Games. I love to play games. I find great, I get great joy out of playing games. But when I put that on my list, if I'm honest, I have to, to recognize, at least at this point in my life, that my, the pleasure I take in playing games leans less towards God and more towards myself. You see, I'm a, I'm a very competitive person. It's, it's very humbling when your kids, you no longer have to let them win. Because <laughs> all of a sudden they get old enough to beat you. And it's very sobering when all of a sudden you're playing games with your kids and your kids go, you're a really sore loser. <laughs> you cheat. <laughs> you just want to win. And the thing is, they're right. I want to win. 
I want to win. You know why I want to win? Because if I win, I'm better than you. Because if I win, I'm number one, and you're not. I'm a very competitive person, and as I examine games, which God has wired me for them, and I enjoy playing them, it's, but if I lay it before God, the pleasure that I get out of games can become an idol, where I'm in it to win it. I'm in it for how it's going to make me feel better about myself. But when I lay that before God and say, God, how can I, t- do I have to just abandon games? Do I just stop playing them? I have to just stay away. I this, remember this was when I was 11 years old. I'm so bad. When I was 11 years old, I had a best friend, 11 years old now, please remember that age, who literally turned to me at the end of a rather intense game of Monopoly and said, you would kill your own grandmother to win a game of Monopoly. <laughs> now, I don't know if I'd go that far. And it's that impulse that I gotta lay before God and go, God, do I just not play games anymore? Is this an addiction for me? Not everything is an addiction. No, but I need to lay it before God and let God allow me to let joy and pleasure come to him through my playing of games. How do I do that? By remembering where that love of games comes from, what it's really about, where the real joy is. The lasting treasure is in the relationship. I love to play games because I love the relationships that get built. The conversations I can have with my kids when I play a game that I can't have any other way. The conversations I can have with you when we play games, that I, the side of you that you'll get to see of me and I'll get to see of you that we don't get any other way. If it's all about the relationship, if that's where I put my focus, if that's where I find my joy, then it's not just about me. I'm sharing it with you and I'm giving glory to God. Do you understand the example I'm giving you here? If I don't confront that, if I don't face that, then eventually, and my kids have warned me of this, no one's going to play with me. Because I'm not fun. Because I'm mean. And you can take that analogy that I'm giving you and apply it to pretty much anything pleasurable. So the first is you're going to see some full-blown idols. The second, as I've shared with you, is you're going to see some things that might be tilting towards idolatry, that you just need to let God turn them around, show you how you can glorify God through those pleasures that God has given you in your life. And the final thing is you may see in your list that you really don't have any real pleasures. That You just have a bunch of empty idols or you don't really know why you do what you do. You don't really have any pleasure in your life. And rather than being in despair, rather than beating yourself up, again, see this as an opportunity as you confront that on paper to prayerfully seek pleasure in the Lord. To instead of bemoaning what you don't have, to recognize that what you've been trying to do on your own can become a spirit-driven enterprise. Instead of festering and worrying about what's on that list, put it aside, rip it up and throw it away, and start from scratch. Start fresh and let your happiness derive from what you know, from how you feel, from what you're experiencing in relationship with Jesus. And if you say, I don't know, I haven't felt, I'm not experiencing, then start. Then embrace the reality of a God who desires you. You're his desire, God's desire. You're God's heart's desire. God wants to be in relationship with you. Bask in that. Find your pleasure in that. Find where Jesus is calling you in your life. You see, we get it backwards. We do this. We think we got to get the stuff and we got to have the experiences and then we'll have the relationships. That's what we think. And it's all backwards. We have the relationship to have the relationships and it's out of the relationships that we get the stuff and we have the experiences. When you reverse it, you've got nothing. When you put it the way God intended, you have everything. Now this inventory I'm asking you to take, I want to be clear on something. Talk to someone about this. 
Don't just keep this to yourself in your head. Don't, don't fall into one of the most dangerous lies that exist, have, has existed since the beginning of time. But in our, I'll give you the catchphrase for it in our day and age. Don't fall victim to the biggest lie which goes, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are laughing uncomfortably. I hate that commercial. That is, and I, say, I do not say this lightly, that is the most demonic advertising slogan I have ever seen in my life. Because it is perpetuating laughter aside, nervous laughter aside, a damaging and deceitful lie. It is encouraging you to laugh and to take stock and ignore the crippling power of hidden or secret sin. The sin, the brokenness, the addiction, the idolatry, all the things that keep us apart from each other and from God, they have their power because they, can't, they are kept hidden. They are secret. We deny them, we ignore them ourselves, or we're afraid that we can't face them with other people. It is so important what I'm asking you to do. You don't have to tell everybody, but find one person you can trust and share your list. Share your list. I have just shared with you and it's a little thing, but it's very, very meaningful to me. Solomon has shared with us. Thankfully for Solomon, what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. Solomon confesses to us. Do you understand this? He's the king at the time of Israel's height of power. He could have kept this all to himself. He could have said, um, strike that from the record, rewrite that. He openly confesses to us because he understands the power the power of keeping it to ourselves rather than coming clean and confessing it to God and another person. Talk to somebody else this week, one person. And when you do, you're gonna hear this differently, what I'm about to say. Beloved, there's joy in the Lord. Some of us have come into the faith, like I said earlier, and we think that Christianity means all the joy is gone or you gotta learn a new kind of joy. No, there's joy in the Lord. The scriptures proclaim it. We worship a God who desires for us to experience pleasure in life. Hear that. And again, if you're still struggling with this, consider one of the greatest stories that we have in the Bible that Jesus told us. And I want you to maybe look at it a way you've never looked at it before. I bring it up a lot because it's such a good story. And the story I'm talking about is the parable of the prodigal son. You know that story. Do you remember, do you realize there's two, par two parties in that story? There's two parties in that story. And those two parties are very different from each other. I'm trying to get you in a place where you're thinking about it. One party is self-serving. It's fleeting and it's empty. The other party is thrown by the Father and it's eternal and fulfilling. The party of the prodigal is give me what's mine, I'm taking what I can get and I'm having a good time. And the other party is, don't worry about what you don't have. Stop apologizing and let me give you everything I've got. Which party are you having? Which party are you having right now in your life? Are you having a good time? I don't know your life outside this church. And I, I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that all of you don't have this life separate from church. Are you having a good time? And it's fun, right? You're having a good time. You got a wide circle of strangers. You don't know who they are. Who cares? The more the merrier. Have fun. Are you having a good time? Are you having a good time with a wide circle of strangers, partying it up, living for the moment, and then having that kind of party that leads to being alone? Because when the money runs out, when the fun's all gone, so is everybody else. 
Are you having a good time with what you've got, blowing a hole in your pockets? You can get money fast enough, you can spend it. Anything you can do, you try, any pleasure you can seek, but you always end up empty-handed because it always ends. Are you having a party where at the end of the day, it's all fun and games until you're living like an animal? You're not just acting like a pig, you're feeding them. You're eating what they eat. Or beloved, are you experiencing the eternal joy that transforms us? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Where the circle of relationship aren't strangers. The circle of relationship in your life gets bigger even as it gets closer. Where your family grows exponentially. Your family grows exponentially. Where when the times are tough, when you're empty-handed and you're down and out, that's when you discover who your friends are, who your family are, and you're shockingly, overwhelmingly surprised. Your family grows exponentially along with your joy, your security, your anticipation because every moment just seems to get better and better and you live in this perpetual state of, of the awareness of God's grace and blessing that as good as it is right now, you know the best is yet to come. Beloved, make sure you're attending the right party. Make sure you're attending the right party. My challenge to us today, gosh, my challenge, the Lord's challenge to us today through Solomon, through just this raw stuff is this call for us, instead of being consumed by what we desire, do you feel that? Instead of being consumed by what we desire as we try to please ourselves let us find lasting contentment. Let us find peace for our souls in dying to ourselves and living to please, to glorify God. The lasting return, the heavenly treasure is in the relationships. If we embrace this and embrace each other, all the pleasure, all the joy that we seek will be added unto us. Amen.